Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for coming back and joining us this morning. We are going to continue to look at Titus. So if you have your Bibles, please open up to Titus chapter 2 this morning. And I'm super excited to be back with you and to continue this important discussion from Titus. And let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, I thank you so much for the opportunity to, to look at your word and to study your word. And I thank you for how your word changes us. And we just pray that you would speak to us today by the Holy Spirit's power. Please illuminate your word to our understanding and application. In Jesus' name, amen. One thing I've wanted to do for a couple of Sundays, and that's to thank the music team. I hope you're as blessed as I am by the music, yes, that's exactly right, by the music team, the piano, and, and really the great worship music. And uh, I, I'm so blessed by what you guys do, and I appreciate all that you do there. Um, also, thank you very much to the folks upstairs that you can't see, but they're, they're preparing video, and, they're, and, and if you look at YouTube, you can watch these services if you miss a couple of weeks. And several of you have mentioned that you haven't been at every one of these services. So catch up, look at the YouTube videos, and you can exactly see, and since we're walking directly through a passage of scripture, it's sort of important for continuity's sake and for application. So that's another resource that I'd commend to you. And thank you, Pastor Darren, for the warm welcome, and thank you to everyone else who's made my family and me and us feel so special. Thank you so much. Um, just to recap some of the things that we've discussed in the last couple of weeks. So we went through all of chapter one, and chapter one of Titus was intensely theological. Intensely theological. In fact, it was, it's basically ecclesiology what we looked at, which is the theology of the church, of the nature and structure of the church. And talk about a neglected theology. Ecclesiology is something you don't hear much about these days. We looked at chapter 1, verse 1. If you'll recall, Paul said he was an apostle. And we looked at what we can reasonably describe as the end of the apostolic era. Because of Acts chapter 1, which says that an apostle must be someone who walked with Christ. So there are no apostles today. We talked about there's no new revelation. Like the, the canon of the scripture that God has given us, the 66 books, the revelation has closed. So I wanna give you just a truism to take away. And this is something I read on the theology wall at Liberty University and it never left me. And that is this, if it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. Now that's been ascribed to a lot of different theologians, but as I recall, it was B.R. Lakin whose name was attached to that on the theology board at Liberty University. And that's sort of where we're, where we're going here. We looked at, and the second thing we looked at for ecclesiology was found in verse four, where Paul said, we're gonna talk about a common salvation. And we took time going through the grace covenant statement of faith. And we talked about the things that Christians must believe. And then we looked at the qualification of elders, which is found in verses five through nine, very important. 
And then finally, the command in chapter 1 that's been repeated three times in 17 verses, which is that we should, and you should, if you've been here, hopefully you can say this off the top of your head, teach sound doctrine. That's really what the responsibility is of a pastor, of elders, of bishops, which are all synonymous terms. We concluded, in fact, by mentioning that chapter 2, verse 1 of Titus says, As for you, everyone please look with me there, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, as we segue into chapter 2, we're going to talk about the life that sound doctrine leads to. The life that sound doctrine leads to in the life of believers. So we have the first category is in verse 2, and that is, what does it look like for older men who walk with Christ? Like, how does grace transform older men? Verses 3, 4, and 5 are about women, and Paul breaks that down as to younger and older women, and we'll be talking about that next week. Next week is all for the women here. This is what, how Paul describes what life should look like for you, walking in grace as older and younger women. And then verses 6 through 8 speak of young men, and finally, in verses 9 and 10, we're going to be looking at bond servants. And what does Paul say to bond servants in that day? Now, ladies, I know that you just heard me say we're going to be talking about older men today. But I have several good reasons for you not to tune out. Okay? Number one, if you're single, if you're a young lady who's single, if you made a list from just this verse of these qualifications as possibly... These are the requirements for someone I'm going to get married to. This could be transformational for you. Because these are great requirements listed here in verse 2 of chapter 2. Young men, maybe you don't qualify as an older man yet, like me. But I still want to listen because these are aspirational. Like these are things I want to aspire to. And ladies, the last thing I'll say is, you may want to remind your husband of some of this stuff later on in the week. Now, don't say amen, but I was going to say that as a man, I can tell you proof positive that we actually need this more than you, but I'm not going to say that. So let's look, let's dig in to just verse 2 today, and this is what older men, how Paul instructs older men. So let's, let's, let's read that. In... Um, Verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, sound in love, and in steadfastness. And this is quite a contrast to what we've already seen, the way Paul diagnoses the current people that were in Crete. If you remember... In verses 9 through 12 of chapter 1, Paul said, There are many people in your midst who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers. And then he said of the Cretans, they are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So here he's saying, you don't want to be like that, but the new you, the grace-filled you, wants to be like this. What I'm about to tell you in, in uh, verse 2 of chapter 2. Now, before we go much further, I want to tell you, these are really hard things. Because a lot of us were not told when we signed up for the faith that what we're really signing up for is a life of self-denial. We're getting on 
the narrow road. That's what that is. So following these things and doing them is contrary to what our flesh wants in many cases. It's very contrary to what our flesh wants. So let's break these down. So number one, Paul writes that older men are to be sober-minded. What is sober-minded? Now for each one of these words, we're going to try and define the word, illustrate it, and also we're going to try and talk about the opposite of the word because I think that will help us clarify what is meant by the word. So what is sober-minded? A.W. Tozer said this about sober-mindedness, and I love what he said here. Sobriety is that human attitude of mind when calm reason is in control. The mind is balanced and cool, and the feelings are subject to reason. And this statement is proof enough, and he adds this nugget here. This is a golden nugget that he adds right here. This is proof enough for me that the Holy Spirit will never urge believers into any kind of spiritual experience that violates and dethrones reason. That's what Tozer said. Such a great quote. There are several places in the New Testament that talk about being sober-minded or sober-mindedness. If you're taking notes, and I hope you are, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, Paul exhorts Timothy, be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. So what is the opposite of sober-minded? Paul's first command for older men, be sober-minded. What is the opposite? Maybe foolish, irresponsible, careless even? Let me illustrate that. I was pulling into a Chick-fil-A parking lot and I could see there was a police situation unfolding in the parking lot. There was a squad car on one side of the parking lot and a squad car on the other side of the parking lot. And as I was observing this situation, I could see a young lady walk out of the door. She, she had a Chick-fil-A uniform on, so she was obviously getting off work and walking towards her car. Yet she was not paying attention to what was going on all around her. Instead, she was focused on her phone and she was walking out the door and she almost walked right into a police situation without even realizing it. Thankfully, at the last second, she came to her senses, she turned around and she went back inside and nothing bad happened to her. But friends, that's how many of us walk through life. We aren't really paying attention to spiritual things. We're not listening and thinking critically about what we hear. We are not examining the things we read or see to see if they line up with Scripture. We need to stay alert. Paul tells us we need to be sober-minded and we need to remain sober-minded and attentive to spiritual things. That's what it means to be sober-minded. It means to pay attention to the state of our souls, our vertical relationship with God, and our horizontal relationship with our family and those in the church family. That's what it means to be sober-minded, and that's number one on the list. Paul says older men should be sober-minded. The next thing Paul says that older men should be is, everyone have notes in front of you looking at your word? Dignified. 
Dignified, the word dignified translates the Greek word semnotes, which refers to a pattern of moral behavior which entitles somebody to reverence, respect, dignity, and honor. I was thinking about a good way to paint a picture about what it means to be a dignified man. And I was actually talking to someone here about this a couple of weeks ago, so it gave me this idea. And I thought I'd compare and contrast two legendary coaches. One who was very dignified, and one who was almost the very opposite of dignity. Okay? So on the one hand, anyone remember Coach Tom Landry of the Dallas Cowboys? Legendary Coach Tom Landry. Now what you will probably remember about him if you're my age or older is that he was very dignified. He stood on the sidelines with a suit and a hat, and no matter what happened on the football field, you could never see it in his face or his emotions or his body language. If his team scored a touchdown, he was completely flat. If his team threw an interception, no reaction whatsoever. Very, very dignified all the time. On the other hand, how many know head coach Bobby Knight from the Indiana Hoosiers? <laughs> Legendary for throwing a chair onto the basketball court, physically assaulting his players, profane, the very opposite of what we're talking about. That's dignified. We need to be dignified. Now, a couple of illustrations from Scripture about being dignified. Number one, please make a note of this. Acts 17, verse 11. The Bereans. It is written about the Bereans in Acts 17 that they were very noble. And here's why. Because they received, with the, they received the Word with great eagerness, and they examined the Scriptures daily to see if the message was true. We need to be like those Bereans. Amen? That's what we need to do. That's our calling, to be diligent in examining the Word to see if the things that are true. The second illustration I have for you is the prodigal son from Luke 15. If you would, please, please turn with me to Luke 15, and let's slowly consider the, this parable. Luke 15, starting at verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had. So he'd already asked for his inheritance. He had received that from his father. He took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property with reckless living. So the idea is debased, depraved conduct, very undignified type conduct. Drinking and carousing and that kind of thing. Verse 14, And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. So here he is, wallowing around in essentially a pig pen. This is the prodigal son. Very, very undignified. And his choices led him to this. And he was longing, verse 16, just to, just to punctuate the undignity. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And yet no one gave him anything. So you could say he's hit rock bottom. So what does he do in verse 17? But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough to, to eat, but I perish here in hunger? Verse 18, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, 
I have sinned against heaven and before you. Verse 19, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. What's he doing here? He's repenting. He's repenting. He is turning from these undignified choices that he's made, and he's coming back to his father. Now his father, there's not a ton written about him, but you could almost make an argument that he is a very dignified person because he was calm, he was patient, he was loving, and he took the son back with love and great joy, and then he had to do something else, explain to his other son why he took the bad prodigal back. And look with me at verse 24. The father said, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now he is found. Maybe you feel at times like the prodigal. Maybe you've made some very undignified choices and you would be frankly embarrassed if many of us here knew what some of those things were. The remedy here is repentance. It's to turn back to God in faith. Turn from those choices and start all over again. We need to remain dignified, self-controlled, dignified, uh, no matter what comes our way, we need to model ourselves after the Bereans, after the father in the prodigal son story, and maybe after coach Tom Landry. Third thing Paul tells us in, in Titus chapter 2, verse 2, is we need to be self-controlled. Now this is so important, self-control. This is the ability to control ourselves, to be temperate and moderate, which is not given to excess. It's patience. It's the natural outcome of a life that's controlled by the Holy Spirit. Because the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control. That's what Paul's telling him. You need to be self-controlled. And I was thinking of four specific areas for us that we need to be self-controlled in. Okay? Number one, finance. Personal finance. I was reading recently that U.S. consumer debt is now $17 trillion, consumer debt. Not the federal debt, which is growing at $1 trillion every 100 days, but the consumer debt. Alarmingly, credit card debt last year rose 17% in the United States, and there's now $1.5 trillion owed on automobile loans. Does Scripture say a lot about personal finance? Let me ask you that. It does. And self-control about personal finance is one of the main things. Let me just share with you a couple of Scriptures. Maybe take a note here. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. Here's what Paul told the church at Corinth. On the first day of every week, each of you put something aside and store it up as you may prosper. Does that take self-control? to put money aside every week and not just spend everything that comes in? Yes, it does. I'll remind you, Proverbs 22, the borrower is the slave to the lender. The rich rules over the poor and the borrower is the slave to the lender. A few weeks ago, we mentioned in here that some of our worst problems of our very own making, like these are self-imposed problems that we have we've created for ourselves and this is one area personal finance and we need self-control 
The second area where it's really important to exercise self-control is in the area of food and drink. And we talked about gluttony last week, so I won't talk a lot about that, but just to refresh your recollection, we talked about gluttony that is eating or drinking to excess or beyond reason. It's an obsessive love of food or material pleasure, and this is an area where we need self-control. And then number three, another area we need self-control, the area of sexual temptation. Sexual temptation is all around us. And we need to be like Joseph in Potiphar's house. And I would like to highlight that to you right now. Please turn to Genesis chapter 39. We need to be like Joseph in Potiphar's house. Genesis 39, starting at verse 7. And I think you all know the story, but I think it's so important to look at these words. Genesis 39, verse 7. After a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he's put everything that he has in my charge. Reading on down to verse 12. She caught him by his garment. And she said, lie with me again. But he left his garment in her hand, and he fled, and he got out of the house. Notice what he does here. He does exactly what we're told to do in 2 Timothy 2.22, which is to flee youthful lusts. Like, he literally flees the lust. And here's the point from that story. Never trade what you want most for what you want right now. And that is in almost any of these areas we're talking about. Never trade what you want most for what you want right now. The fourth area we need to use self-control is in our words, our words, like the things we say to each other. Is this hard? Is this just me? Maybe anyone else struggle in this area? We talk too fast. Our words, we need to be self-controlled. Do you know who was the best example of self-control and grace under fire with the words that he spoke? And that was Jesus. Look with me, if you would, at Mark 15. Let's look at that real fast. Mark chapter 15. Mark 15, verse 3. And the chief priests accused him of many things. Have you ever been there where you were accused of many things? And what do we want to do in our flesh when, we're, when that happens to us? And Pilate asked him again, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Many times we need to be self-controlled with our words like that. And 1 Peter chapter 2 adds that Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. What about you? What about me? How do we exercise self-discipline in all these areas? In spending, in budgeting, in giving, in our words. Do we find ourselves engaged in excessive eating or drinking? Do we fly off the handle quickly when we're threatened or when we lose control of a situation? That's self-control. The fourth area Paul tells Titus, you need to be sound in faith. 
And this is sort of, goes very nicely with what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. Sound in faith. We need to be like the early church. So if you're taking notes, please, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And what did the church do? They continued, or they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread, which we're going to do shortly, and, and to prayers. And we do this so that we can, and like Paul says in Ephesians 4.14, so that we are no longer children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Let me ask you this. Are there people today who are being carried about by every wind of doctrine and tossed to and fro? Spurgeon gave us this great illustration. Here's what Spurgeon said. If you plant a tree in your garden, you plant it in one place today, and tomorrow you move it to somewhere else in your garden, and then several other times you keep moving the tree because you think it would look somewhere better in your yard, and he said this, how big is that tree going to be in six months? And he said, it'll be dead, very likely, and if it doesn't die, it will be marvelously stunted in its growth. And then he added this, so it is with some of you. That's what Spurgeon said, so it is with some of you. What's he suggesting? We don't stay long enough in one place to plant roots and grow. We constantly move on from thing to thing, from concept to concept, maybe looking for the next exciting thing, maybe reading the next exciting book, whatever comes down the pike. We need to be sound in faith. Now the fifth thing Paul tells Titus is you need to be sound in love. And a great description of what love is, is, you all know this, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let's look at that real fast. Now this is really important. Please turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, because I want to walk you through this, but I'm also going to walk you through it in the context with which this was written, because that's also very important for us. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. And Paul's saying this. You, Titus, tell the older men, be sound in this, what we're about to read. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now here's the context part. And this is a little bit out of the the context of our sermon, but because it's the context of this passage, I want to share this. The love that Paul's talking about here doesn't end, but the context of 1 Corinthians 13 is in spiritual gifts. So right after he talks about this love doesn't end, he says there's some spiritual gifts that end. Look with me at verse 8, and this is so important. I was talking to Pastor Darren about this the other day. Love doesn't end, but as for prophecies, they're going to end. As for tongues, speaking in tongues as a spiritual gift, it will cease. And as knowledge, words of knowledge will pass away. Now, so then in verse 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three things. But the greatest of these is love. And if you believe that these sign gifts have passed away or ceased. You're called a cessationist, of which I am. So that's the context of 1 Corinthians 13. But back to Titus, 
We're to be sound in love. Now, ask yourself this, what is the opposite of love? I was thinking about that. And this is a great table talk discussion point maybe for you at lunch today. First I thought maybe hate. But then I thought maybe for our purposes here today we'd talk about indifference. Because indifference, while it might not be the exact opposite of love, indifference and selfishness are all around us and they very much can serve as the opposite of love. Think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. The priest and the Levite walked right by the injured man. Did they hate him? They were indifferent. They didn't kick him while he was down. They didn't do anything to him or to help him. They were very indifferent. And it can be like that in our homes. Think about that. We can be indifferent to our spouses, not meeting their needs. We could be indifferent, not meeting our children's needs, which is called neglect. Neglect is not giving your children the physical affection they need, the shepherding, leaving them to their own devices. That's neglect. And it's sort of the opposite of love in this context. Yet Paul tells Titus, I want you to be sound in love. And then finally, number six, be steadfast. Steadfast. What a great word this is. The Merriam-Webster dictionary definition of steadfast is firmly fixed in place, immovable and loyal. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. What a great verse that would be to maybe put on your mirror so that you constantly reminded yourself. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. What is the opposite? Disloyal, maybe fickle, inconsistent, or uncommitted? I read a story recently about a man, his name was Rich Moore, and he was hiking in Blackhead Peak in the Colorado Mountains. Unfortunately, Mr. Moore died tragically of hypothermia, but he was walking with his dog. He was hiking with his dog, Finney, a Jack Russell Terrier. And um, his dog miraculously survived and stayed by Mr. Moore's side for 10 weeks until help arrived. And finally, a hunter found Mr. Moore's body and saw loyal Finney standing right by the owner's side. And I thought to myself, we need to be like Finney. I mean, we need to be that kind of steadfast with those people that we love in our lives, the church, and all the commitments that we have made. We need to be that kind of steadfast and consistent. Now, I'm going to conclude with this. We cannot do any of this stuff in our own strength. Now, if I was just to put this on you and not give you the equipment or the way to deal with this, it would lead us to guilt and condemnation. And Romans 8.1 says there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ. So if you're in Christ, he's going to equip you to do this. But we can't do it in our own strength. And how do I know that? Romans 7, verse 18, Paul wrote this. For I know that nothing, in, nothing good dwells in me, in my flesh. For I have this desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And that's sort of us. As I made this list this week and started praying through them, I thought, you know, I've sort of blown a couple of these this week. Is that you? It's me far too often or more than I want to admit that I cannot do this in my own strength. But the great thing is, this is really the good thing, 
We're going to finish this by reading Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, and it does several things. It brings salvation to all people, and verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled. Training us. That word training implies this is a process. None of us are perfect. We're not there. If we're in Christ, if we've trusted him as our Savior, he's going to work this out in us. Philippians 1.6 He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. It's his work. He's going to work these things out in us. And older men in our midst, be encouraged. God can give you the strength to live these six things out. Thank you so much. And I'm going to turn this now back over to Pastor Darren for communion. But let me pray for us. God, I thank you so much for your word and the clarity and these six things that Paul sets out for us as benchmarks, really, for all of us. I pray that you would help us to aspire to these things. And for the young ladies, that they would just cling to these things as possible uh, requirements for a spouse that they might like. I pray that you would speak to us, guide us, and direct us today, and help us to leave here differently than we came. In Jesus' name, amen.